and when we've published some papers uh, on this. And so, um, and this effect, and, and these effects uh, were experienced by youth who were directly impacted by the wildfires, but also youth who were living in the community at the time. Hello everyone, and welcome back to You Creates podcast, Many Different Birds, broadcasting on CJSW Radio, where we will hear authentic stories from special guests from all backgrounds and bridge the gap between non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities, with a special focus on the Canadian healthcare system. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksiga, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. So let's talk a little bit more about what disaster preparedness means. Um, and even before that, how would you define a disaster? Well, that's such a great question because there's lots of definitions that get used um, in thinking about some of these key terms. Um, often a disaster, and, and by disaster I will say disaster, not the term natural disaster, but a disaster is often an event that exceeds a community's ability to cope. And so, for example, you can have um, a heavy rainfall event um, in a remote area that doesn't lead to a disaster. But if that same heavy rainfall event takes place in an urban city area, it could potentially lead to a disaster. Um, So the context is very important. And so what uh, an event that takes place in one community site might not be a disaster in another community site based on a variety of uh, different aspects and features. Right. So can you comment on whether or not the current wildfires would be considered a disaster? Yes. So we're in quite a difficult time right now in Western Canada. It's been uh, about a month that we've had really uncontrollable wildfires burning. And this is certainly a disaster event. Um, A state of emergency has been declared in the province of Alberta, which allows for financial resources to come um, and and battling the wildfires. And um, and also elsewhere in Canada now, in British Columbia and Saskatchewan, our neighbouring provinces, there have also been wildfires in Nova Scotia recently, and now uh, also in Quebec and Ontario. So reports are already saying that this is quite um, a high wildfire season for us in Canada, which really calls on us to think about how can we address these kinds of challenges in different ways um, so that we're better prepared and able to manage these kinds of events. Mm. And I know you just touched on a little bit about how you don't want to call it natural disaster. Would you want to elaborate on that? Is sure. That reason? Yeah, th- this is this has been uh, a debate in, in the field of sociology for some time, because the term natural disaster implies that uh, there's something natural or inherent about an event that leads to a disaster. But research has shown that... Um, Disasters are influenced by many different events and and they don't have to be natural. If we're prepared, if we can um, mitigate these these kinds of uh, natural hazards, then they don't have to become disasters. So in my own work, I avoid uh, the use of the term natural disaster and, and focus on disasters. Okay, that's interesting. 
Um, so what does it mean to be resilient in this context? Oh, it's such a such great questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, resilience is also um, a, another important term that has been defined in different ways over the years. Um, an individual can be resilient. A community can be resilient. Uh, infrastructure can also be resilient. So depending on uh, what you're attributing resilience to, it can take on some different definitions. Um, as a social worker, um, I have found uh, one definition to be quite useful, and that's by Michael Ungar, who um, has a resilience research center at Dalhousie University. And in that definition, it talks about how resilience um, acknowledges people's strengths rather than the deficits, that it's something that can be built or developed, kind of like a muscle, you can, you can work at it. And it's not something inherent that a person has or doesn't have. There's capacity for everyone uh, to become resilient. And so um, one of the ways that this can be done is through the delivery of services and programs. So not just looking at the individual person, but the kinds of relationships that people have in their lives. And social workers play an important role in the delivery of social services and programs. And um, those services and programs can help build and foster resiliency. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I really like how you mentioned that resilience isn't like an inherent trait and it's something that you can develop and mm -hmm. you can um, have more resilience as a community. And that like brings a lot of hope for communities that they can become more resilient in order to better address disasters. Uh, and I've also heard the term climate resilience. Is that how would you define that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so climate resilience um, in many ways, my understanding of climate resilience is that as we're starting to experience these impacts of climate change at various levels, and, and sometimes those can lead to natural hazard events becoming more frequent and more intense. Um, climate resilience is thinking about that resilience in light of some of the challenges um, that relate to climate and climate risks. And so becoming climate resilient is really thinking about what are some of the risks that are uh, becoming uh, amplified as a result of climate change and what can be done to kind of build up um, a response and, and adaptation. So for example, um, here in Calgary, for example, we, there's a river, right? And so to become climate resilient might mean to strengthen some of the infrastructure around the river. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that has been done in recent years, especially over the past decade since the 2013 floods. So thinking about um, the role of infrastructure, preparedness, working with communities to address risks so that heavy rainfall events don't lead to flooding like maybe they did in the past. Building resilience within communities is crucial for long-term disaster preparedness. Um, so providing ongoing support to affected communities after a disaster event is crucial for long-term recovery. Can you provide uh, examples of innovative approaches or strategies that have been successful in helping communities adapt and cope yeah. with the challenges posed by disaster events? Sure. No, I, let me think of a few here. Um, 
So after the 2013 floods uh, here in southern Alberta and, and the city of Calgary was affected, as well as uh, a number of other communities in the southern Alberta region, um, we've con- we conducted a three-year research project to look at uh, child and youth resilience and mental health. Um, for example, one of some of our partners were located in the town of High River. And so with our partners, we were able to identify what were uh, some of the services and programs that made a difference in the lives of children and youth after the flood and and what were some uh, good practices. And uh, one of the examples that comes to mind uh, was a program that was funded in schools called Hearts and Minds. And in this program, um, there were new supports and activities built in the schools themselves um, for children and youth who were going to school and creating spaces where they could come and talk to a counselor or um, come and take a break from the classroom, um, engage in arts and crafts activities. So there was a, a range of supports that were provided directly in the school system. And so I I think that's an important practice because often when we think about um, promoting psychosocial health and and mental health and well-being, often we think about an individual who needs to go and access maybe a specialized support. But there's a whole range of uh, activities that can take place out in the community that can really benefit everyone. Um, so that's an example that that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. That's such an it's such an interesting question, and I think such a timely one. We, we've just recently we just found out a few days ago that we've been funded uh, to conduct a new research project, and uh, postdoctoral scholar Dr. Mahed Chowdhury will be leading this project, and I'll be supporting him in it. And it's really actually to look at notions of resilience ten years since the flood. Uh, from an insider perspective, what we call an emic perspective. So it'll be going back to some of the communities that experienced the flood and to talk to community members directly about their understanding of resilience, what's changed, um, how do they feel kind of looking back now over some of the interventions that took place? Do they feel more resilient as a result of what's taken place or are there still areas that need to be looked at? And, and I think it's really important in this space um, to be speaking with community members directly who were who were affected, because often in disaster response and sometimes in the early days of, of disaster recovery, a lot of outsiders will come into a community and provide supports and initiatives, but they're not there necessarily for the long term. And so then they might have to leave and, and go back to where they came from, you know, whether that's elsewhere in the province or sometimes outside of the province. And so it's really important, and this is what we've been learning from from some research projects, is to uh, really privilege the voices of community members who are directly affected and creating those spaces so that they can have a voice um, and really lead some of these initiatives Mm -hmm. um, and really lead some of these initiatives. That's awesome. Yeah, I've taken a few social work classes with my Nepal study abroad program that I did last summer. So this was a topic of interest where we did talk about how outside initiatives would come into a community, implement some changes, stay there for a year or two and then leave. And that's not necessarily super sustainable for those communities. So I'm great that you guys are taking more initiative to hear voices within the community to see 
what kind of needs does this community need? And then how can we implement strategies uh, for the long term, something that's more sustainable? Um, so what kind of methods do you guys use in terms of when you go into these communities? How are you planning on doing uh, speaking directly with community members? Are you going to have like a podcast or... Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I, I think it always depends on on the focus of the research project in, in this case. Um, and so, for example, in the Alberta Resilient Communities Project, which looked at child and youth resilience post-flood in southern Alberta, um, we had three different streams of activities. Um, the first stream looked at working directly with children. And so you can imagine that the approaches needed to be very child-friendly. So they could include art uh, art activities, um, drawings, um, a variety of ways to engage children um, and sometimes their parents. Then there was a youth stream. And so again, kind of different methods bringing youth together um, They use digital storytelling in that stream, and so some new ways of trying to uh, create spaces for youth to express themselves and talk about climate change and and its effects. And then there was a third stream, which was the community influencer stream, where we talked with community leaders and service providers, sometimes teachers, and some government officials and policymakers. And and in those methods, we used more interviews and focus groups uh, to bring people together to hear about their perspective and concerns. Um, so it really varies, I think, on, on the audience and, and really what you're aiming to achieve, what your research questions are, kind of driving some of those methods. And um, participatory methods can also be quite effective where you're working with co-researchers and um, creating the questions together, analyzing the findings together. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you brought youth together because they are the future generation. They need to be involved in these community events these issues these problems and know about the issues have that knowledge be engaged in it and yeah because youth is a generation or our next generation but um what motivated you to take this career path mm-hmm. then? It, that's a that's a very interesting question. Um, so, so my area is in the field of international social work, and and um, I've worked abroad um, in the global south and in a number of countries uh, for about a decade, and. Um, And while I was uh, abroad, I did experience some environmental events myself and and saw how um, the environment in many cases was often perceived as another resource available for extraction and and to really uh, support economic development. And it raised a lot of questions for me about sustainability. And I grew up in a small town in northern Ontario and I had some early influences about, you know, looking at industries that won't pollute the natural environment. Um, and so some of those kind of formative experiences led me to think about uh, what's the role of social work in the context of the natural and physical environment. And it was uh, living in the interior of British Columbia that was starting to face annual wildfires where I really started to see not just the immediate impacts, but how this was affecting communities in the long term. And that really sparked my interest because this was an area that wasn't, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to it. And and at the time, there, there weren't many social workers in Canada who were looking at issues related to the environment. And and so I had an opportunity to go to several international conferences, and there I started to meet others. 
who shared similar interests. And and then we started to collaborate and, and do some work together. And it's been a great experience. So for me now, it's been um, about 15 years that I've been looking at issues related to climate adaptation and looking at the role of social workers in long-term disaster recovery. And and I'm still learning a lot <laughs> in this in this space, yes. <laughs> And I know you mentioned about youth communities. Have you looked into other communities? No, that that's a great point. Um, yeah, we've recently completed a, a research project looking at the role of social workers and, and human service professionals in disaster recovery uh, since the 2016 wildfires in Fort McMurray and Wood Buffalo region. Um, and just last weekend, I, w- I was part of a workshop looking at older adults in disaster settings. And so there were a number of researchers who presented on uh, various projects, again, kind of looking at the role of older adults who may face certain challenges, but are also resilient and have many strengths that they can contribute um, in disaster preparedness. So um, I think it, it really varies uh, with individuals that you're working with to kind of see like all, I would say everyone is affected by disasters, but not everyone is affected the same way. And has in social work, we're particularly interested in marginalized and vulnerable populations who may be facing various inequalities or inequities. So that's something that I, I'm very interested in. Is there a difference between how youth versus adults view disaster events? Like like a disaster event? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in Canada, many Canadians think it won't happen to them. <laughs> and so, you know, there is certainly a need to, to be thinking about how can we become better prepared? And that can happen in different ways. Um, but I would say that, you know, some of the lessons that have come out of experiencing these events, um, you know, can sometimes bring people closer together in a community. Um, We've seen in in some sites different types of activities and barbecues and ways that people are connecting, um, you know, youth getting involved in cleanup efforts and getting uh, active in in different types of activities that maybe they weren't involved in before. Um, Yeah, we were just about to go to a cleanup, like, yeah, we're when actually organizing a cleanup yeah. this Thursday. Okay. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's awesome to see youth that are really passionate about environment and conservation. Mm-hmm. And the amount of people that were interested in this cleanup was great. So we're really looking forward to it. And I feel like there's a lot of youth that are doing a lot of climate and environment initiatives, but um, I feel like they need a bigger platform to be able to influence like policymakers and actually see changes there. Mm-hmm. So how are you kind of using your research to inform policies and how does that entire process work? Yeah, yeah. It is a bit complicated because sometimes uh, research evidence doesn't always get taken up into policy, which can be a bit frustrating, <laughs> but there's a whole process around that. Um but I, th- I think part of it is, you know, thinking about the different audiences that you want to try and influence and kind of recognizing that different strategies are needed. And um, we're kind of at an interesting time in Canada right now with um, the development of the quality of life framework and thinking about uh, the Canadian uh, index on well-being. And so there is a greater recognition and I'd say appreciation that we need to go beyond the economics and, and GDP measurements 
certainly that's still important, but uh, many Canadians feel that we also need to be taking care of the environment, that we need to pay attention to our health. There's lots of other factors that come into play when we think about a person's health and well-being. And so um, trying to put that um, into practices and having an influence on policymakers, I think requires long-term visioning because it is quite a, a change from our paradigm, you know, in which that a lot of our systems are, are built upon. And, um, and I think we're moving in the right direction. I think we are starting to see some changes, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic, which has really shown uh, the various inequities that exist in Canadian society. And sometimes I feel like we're at a, a crossroads where we need to be making some decisions about what we want the future to look like. And I think youth are a very important part of that. Um, like you said, youth are the next generation, they're the future generation, and they need to be involved and heard um, today. And too often, there aren't enough spaces, I think, for youth to uh, have that kind of influence, um, like either at a provincial or federal or international level. Um, and so in my work, I'm, I'm interested in, in working directly with youth and creating spaces uh, for youth to share their perspectives, how they're experiencing the impacts of disasters and climate change directly, and trying to amplify voices around what's needed for the future. Um, so that could be like a podcast. <laughs> um, it could be an, an undertaking different actions. And I think sharing those, so finding ways for youth to learn from one another, to connect and listen and hear and share ideas. Social media is a big platform yes. we can use. Definitely. Because it's so like, youths are so involved with social media. It's a great platform for yeah, awareness. A lot of people look at it negatively, but I think it's a great way to reach out to yeah. a lot of people at once and really engage people when it comes to um, working with climate change. And I know a lot of people really want to be a part of this change, but there's a, a lot of like eco-anxiety about where do we even get started and it seems like this problem is way too big big to be able to solve as individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, and that's why I think it's important to make these connections because I think together we can uh, be stronger in making a difference. Yeah, so individual actions are important. It's important to become aware of what's going on, but together we can you know, have more impact. Dreamwork makes the team work. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and let's go back and talk a little bit more about these different communities and how they're prepared. Are they prepared for disasters? Like, uh, I know you said you worked with marginalized and vulnerable communities. What are the different risks that different communities have that we're seeing? Yeah, well, they can, they can certainly vary. Um, So, for instance, if we were looking at uh, the Indigenous communities in Alberta, mm -hmm. have you worked with Indigenous communities? Yeah. So, in our uh, in our research, uh, in after the wildfires in Fort McMurray after 2016, um, we conducted a, a couple of projects to kind of look at uh, some of the health effects of the, of the wildfires. In this case, it was primarily on children and youth, mm -hmm. and uh, the project had multiple components. 
And um, one of the things that we learned at a population level uh, in a survey that was conducted with over 3,000 youth in, um, in the schools, um, and the public school boards were, were one of our partners, um, was 18 months after the wildfire, there were still quite significant mental health effects. Um, and when we've published some papers uh, on this. And so, um, and this effect, and, and these effects uh, were experienced by youth who were directly impacted by the wildfires, but also youth who were living in the community at the time, or afterwards, sorry, like at the 18 month point. So what that told me was that, you know, the, there is, there is certainly a need for a wide range of psychosocial and mental health supports, including specialized access in the case of PTSD, um, anxiety, um, depression, um, alcohol and tobacco use. Um, and what we found were, were that resilience scores were lower in youth who um, had one or more of these um, conditions. In working uh, with some of the service providers and community organizations, uh, we learned that many Indigenous people are resilient, um, but they also felt experienced certain challenges with um, re-triggering of trauma at the time of the wildfire. And part of this um, was in relation to some high suicide rates that were being experienced. Uh, in the north, as well as the opioids crisis. And so it was difficult to think about uh, disaster recovery and isolation from these other issues that were taking place in the community. So we needed to have, and, and many service providers spoke about needing to have a broad and holistic approach uh, with a focus on healing. And so I think it's a very good reminder that um, there's a need to center Indigenous knowledge in disaster recovery and that there are a range of cultural and community supports uh, that can be uh, enhanced or supported with additional funding in the aftermath of a disaster event. And too often, uh, the resources and supports that are provided are only available in the short term. And what we learned uh, in our research is that there's a need for longer-term financial support. And um, th this has appeared now in several research projects where we've heard this directly from service providers who are working directly with individuals who, who are trying their best to access the services they need to build that resiliency. And too often, um, funding is only provided for up to three years. Sometimes a fourth year might be extended but we know uh, from other major disaster events like Hurricane Katrina in the United States that it can sometimes take a decade or longer for a community to recover from a, from a wide-scale disaster. So we really need to rethink these notions and um, look at really providing a much stronger social protection floor that will enable all individuals to be able to access the kind of supports that they need. And does this stem from not having these supports in the first place, or does it stem from people or communities not being able to access them? It's, it's a combination of factors. So I would say um, 
particularly in Alberta, but before some of these disaster events, there have been long wait lists to be able to access mental health supports. And then when you have a disaster event take place, the number of calls and referrals increases substantially. It can, it can go from in the hundreds to the thousands. Mm-hmm. And we even saw this during COVID-19 and yeah. there was a huge mental health crisis. We were all talking about it. Do you mm-hmm. see that these effects are still there in some communities right now in 2023? I, I think so. I, I think um, it, it can be a challenge sometimes to access the right supports at the right time. And um, and again, it sometimes it's not just accessing a counsellor for three or four sessions. It might be that people need some continuing support and a real continuum of services. Um, and, and those can, can be challenging to access in different ways. Mm-hmm. So we were just talking about COVID-19. So I was wondering, do you think we were prepared as a community for COVID-19? And did, we re- did the recovery take longer because we weren't prepared or we were prepared? Yeah. So we've also conducted some research <laughs> on, on the impacts of, of COVID, particularly on, on students and some of our uh, field instructor supervisors in, mm-hmm. in social work education. And um, I think one of the things that we weren't prepared for was the very rapid shift mm-hmm. to offering like all services in a virtual way. That happened very quickly. Um, and so... Um, many uh, individuals and organizations were maybe not prepared for that. However, one of the things we did hear uh, from some of the wildfire affected, actually both flood and wildfire affected communities, is that because of those events, they made a decision as an organization to move from paper files to electronic files. And so when, and also that all staff would have access to a laptop. And so when COVID happened, they were actually able to transition quite well because they had electronic files for their clients and they had laptops and were already already had built some capacity in being able to offer virtual social services. And I thought that was quite interesting because um, that was identified by service providers as like an aspect of, of their preparedness. Um, Right. And a lot of offices moved remote when COVID-19 happened. We had schools online. So I think it kind of worked out. I don't know if we were directly like we probably weren't expecting a sudden pandemic like that. Yeah. At least for the general population. I'm not sure if that's something that social work had anticipated or anyone has anticipated that. Even after the pandemic like tamed down, we're still using these resources that was brought up during the pandemic. As you said, you guys are still using computer files, have laptops now. That's, honestly, I think that was an advantage in a way. I agree. I think it created um, a new way of thinking about about how we work and how we live. And, and it's brought some benefits. Um, we see through research in, in social work education that uh, being able to do some virtual work has improved accessibility. Um, it's provided uh, more flexibility for, for some students and and greater accommodation in ways that you know weren't really considered possible before the pandemic. Now we can offer like a wide range of approaches. Um, one of the things I've heard from service providers is that um, you know there are fewer people canceling appointments if you can offer them yeah. virtually um, compared to in-person appointments, which, 
you know, sometimes could have been canceled 30 to 40 percent in, in a day for various factors. So, you know, thinking about transportation issues, costs of parking, like if you're able to access a virtual service, in some cases, it makes it more accessible and, and easier. But yeah, who could have thought that a pandemic could provide opportunities in a post-pandemic setting? Yeah. I guess you'll got to look at crazy the positive sides of everything to keep it going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it created some challenges, but it also created new opportunities mm-hmm. to do things differently. And um, and some of those are staying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to go back to Indigenous communities. Do they face different disaster and disaster recovery risks than other communities? I think one of the issues is that... Um, there's a need for holistic approaches. And sometimes the systems um, that we have in place to respond to these events may not be able to provide that holism. And so um, there's a need to support Indigenous communities so that they can lead their own recovery and think about how to um, build in that resilience in the recovery process. Um, So, you know, too often, these areas of disaster mitigation are very siloed. And and I think things are starting to move in that direction. There's a greater understanding that if we can build in preparedness, that that will influence response. And if we can start thinking more sustainably about building back better after a disaster event, you can rebuild with greater resilience that will improve preparedness in the future, I think is an issue. I think also the issue of uh, culturally safe and culturally appropriate services is also um, an area of concern for Indigenous communities who um, may be looking for uh, Indigenous ways of knowing and being and and how um, services can be provided within a cultural context that's relevant um, using local Indigenous languages and and not having to travel long distances to be able to access services. Because sometimes uh, when you're in a rural or remote community setting, it can be um, more challenging to access some of those key services and supports that that individuals may need, that that individuals may need. Right, so it seems like there's a lot of, a lack of funding in terms of building and then also being able to sustain these services long-term. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the funding issue is one that always comes up. And and I've heard from uh, non-Indigenous service providers that the disaster recovery process was more traumatic than the disaster itself. And so that really speaks to the need to be paying more attention to what happens in the years after an event. Um, Sometimes individuals may find that they're underinsured, that they're not able to rebuild their home or they're facing homelessness as a result of of an event. Um, Changes in the community taking place, um, the loss of like beautiful natural spaces and how that impacts a community um, can be quite profound. There's various ways um, that that, that trauma can affect individuals um, in, in the context of a disaster or climate change. And um, in our field in social work, we're seeing um, more 
practitioners adopt trauma-informed care practices. And it really is a recognition that everyone has some form of trauma in their lives. And so thinking about how that influences, you know, our behaviors, our choices, what that looks like and in so many different contexts, there's, there's still a need to better understand that, I think, in the context of disasters. Right. So let's go back and talk a little bit more about how how can we make these services more holistic and how can we incorporate Indigenous ways of knowing into services? Do we need um, to better understand through like Indigenous communities themselves and like hear from them directly or what else can we do to better incorporate mm-hmm. this? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I think it's going to take... Uh, Time to be able to build those relationships to understand um, from the experience of everyone involved wh- what this needs to look like in the future, and um, and thinking about uh, how we can decolonize uh, some of our systems and organizations and uh, adopt new ways of of knowing and understanding. Uh, so to summarize, trauma from disaster recovery stays longer than the disaster itself. We need to think about like what role do we all play in uh, preserving and sustaining nature and the earth. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from Indigenous peoples to think about how we can be become better caretakers of, of the planet, um, including uh, the plants and the animals and um, in really kind of focusing more on sustainability and, and nature. and. Um, and creating spaces for Indigenous voices to be heard. Um, because when we start looking at, at climate change as well and its impacts, um, there is a need internationally to ensure that Indigenous-led uh, organizations are having an influence at, at various level, levels and being able to set w- what those uh, parameters are going to look like, like across all the sustainable development goals. Um, and kind of recognizing that Indigenous peoples have often close connections to the land and they're being directly impacted, their way of life, their culture, their practices, by some of these negative effects of climate change. And so um, we need to learn about those impacts from Indigenous peoples, how it's affecting them, how it's affecting fishing and hunting and all the land-based practices that are very much linked to uh, culture and identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like how you bring up the point of uh, Indigenous communities and their relationship to the land. And I, I really saw this. I actually recently visited Manitoulin Island, where I got to work with the local Anishinaabe to learn more about their connection to the environment and land. And I got to participate in a water walk. And it was really, really cool to see how how indigenous cultures treat water and how they treat the land and it's quite a different perspective that you don't usually get to see unless you go and visit communities and talk to elders and directly hear from them the different stories that they have to share mm-hmm. yeah because i know there's also lots of drilling operations going on deforestation and other climate adversities and knowing or hearing from Indigenous communities is very helpful during these processes. Right, it can help think of solutions because because they are so closely related to the land, I feel like they have perspectives and experiences that we may not have living in an urban setting. 
Yeah. But um, talking about like indigenous ways of knowing, how can our educational institutions prepare us for this or like include this mm-hmm. kind of topics? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I, I think it's very important to have content in the curriculum across various programs um, related to um, the environment, and that can include uh, environmental justice, sustainability, and sustainable development as kind of recognizing that that the natural and physical environment is something that's cross-cutting across like all of our understandings, um, kind of like the way gender, like a gender-inclusive or a gender-based analysis plus approach is now informing so many policies and, and ways of working. Um, and in, in our field in social work, uh, we're in the process of redesigning the BSW, uh, our Bachelor's of Social Work degree, and we're going to have a mandatory course looking at green social work and sustainability. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and in our one of our master's specializations in international and community development, uh, we have a required course in advanced practice in sustainable development. So, um, you know, here in, in our faculty of social work at the University of Calgary, we're, we're seeing these changes um, and they're really a reflection of what's happening more broadly in, in society. And, and this is the need to, to really think about how we are connected to the environment and how our well-being often depends on the environment, but we can't just use the environment for our own purposes. We need to think about how we can replenish and restore and foster greater sustainability for future generations. And I love how you said you have it as a requirement, and do you think that should be the case for these topics? I do. I I think making it a requirement rather than an elective or a recommended piece is important. And um, kind of on another level, nationally, our uh, our, our social work programs are accredited in Canada, and now at the undergraduate level, um, it's going to be required for all schools of social work, I think there are 44 of them in Canada, mm-hmm. to have content on environmental justice and sustainability. And uh, this was just passed in 2021. And so now for schools to be accredited in Canada, they're going to have to show that that content is included. So I'm very excited about that. That's a great initiative. Yeah, I'm really glad glad that you guys are doing that because it's very focused on current events and kind of looking into the future. These are going to be the issues that everyone's going to be talking about. And Mm -hmm. it's great that social work students will have the opportunity to better understand them. Yeah. You were talking about social work. Do you think it should be a requirement for other bachelors or other degrees? Yeah. And this is where, you know, I would say everyone has a role to play in in thinking about these environmental concerns. And um, it's often referred to as the whole of society approach. So kind of recognizing that everyone, the whole of society needs to be involved. And so I do think it should be it should be a requirement um, because every discipline can take on um, an action related to the to environmental issues today, and um, and it's also kind of shifting how we view social work in addressing some of these complex problems because social workers are going to have to work with scientists and geographers and urban planners and political scientists and health workers, you know, in in so many different ways. So we we need to think about how do we do that in our education 
to kind of set that foundation for collaboration, working across disciplines, and being able to look at issues from a variety of perspectives. Yeah, it would be a good way for like interdisciplinary teams getting to know how each perspective comes in for that one topic. Right, right. And I'm thinking right now, like during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, did you feel that the kind of like the healthcare system was able to keep up with what was going on? Did you think we were prepared um, in the healthcare sector to face a pandemic like COVID-19? Yeah, I would say no. <laughs> I, I don't think the healthcare system was prepared. And um, and, and now, you know, a few years later, we're, we're able to learn from that and kind of look back and say, okay, what happened with vaccines? <laughs> what happened with protective equipment? Like what happened with um, staff shortages and, you know, sometimes retired healthcare workers being called to come back um, to practice because of the shortages and the need for equipment during that time. So it raised a lot of a lot of issues that I think have have really now um, shown that, you know, we need to be taking action and, and we need to build more resilient systems like healthcare systems to be better prepared for the future. Have more programs and services been put in place since the pandemic to better connect social work and healthcare? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Um, I think there continue to be discussions about wh what this could look like. Um, I think in the field of social work, um, there's an openness to uh, trying to create um, new new ways of, of of doing the work. So thinking about uh, using technology to improve efficiencies and effectiveness. Um, in an area that I've been quite involved with uh, in field education, which is where students do field placements or practicum placements. Uh, some of them are placed in the healthcare system. Some of them are placed in other government systems. Some are based in community organizations. Um, We've uh, done some research to identify promising, innovative, and wise practices that, that could be adopted. And, and so that can include, for example, a, rather than a student being supervised by only one uh, field instructor, which can sometimes be quite demanding on, let's say, a social worker in the healthcare system, there's new models that are being tried now, like rotational models where a student could go through different departments and be supervised by different social workers in different units to kind of share the workload. And the student gains insight into like different areas of healthcare practice. Um, also seeing the use of technology in supporting students and supervision, um, creating self-directed activities where students can access trainings and identify their learning goals and activities that will help them meet that. So, so we're seeing, I, I would say, a, an openness, again, because of COVID, of doing things differently um, that, that might be more sustainable because um, field education has been in crisis in Canada. There have been increasing numbers of students enrolled in social work across the country, and it's been becoming more challenging to find placements for, for all of these students, especially in the healthcare system. And so if we want to create those learning opportunities for 
social workers to be like the next generation of, of healthcare social workers, we, we do need to do things differently. And, and we're finding ways of, of collaborating and engaging in kind of these new spaces uh, to be able to provide quality learning opportunities for students. During a disaster, what other settings do you think are heavily impacted? Like I know we mentioned healthcare, but what other sectors? Yeah, so, so many sectors I think are impacted um, by by a, a major disaster, and, and and also quite a few from uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, I guess off- which ones are like priority, or which ones should we be focused on? Be focused on. All of them. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a tough question because there there are so many systems that that we rely upon. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's intertwined, like all sectors. Yeah, it has to be intertwined with each other. If like one's down, one's gone, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and I think this is where you know thinking about well being, right? Mm-hmm. Like what contributes to people's health and well being, and this can be a real challenge trying to access uh, the resources through insurance providers to be able to rebuild, because too often, um, and, and and this does happen in smaller communities and, and rural communities. Uh, people find out that maybe they're underinsured or uh, they're not insured for the replacement value of what's needed, and. Um, Another another thing that we've seen in some uh, rural communities in British Columbia is that property values declined after a disaster event. So uh, particularly for older people who, who may be retired and maybe over the years have, you know, saved to pay off their home, they now find themselves with, with their home, their property that isn't worth what it used to be worth. And that can be a real challenge um, if someone was thinking that this is part of their financial savings for their retirement and maybe they were thinking they might sell the home in the future to maybe go someplace else or access certain supports and that's not there anymore. So um, the lower property values sometimes uh, related to housing in a community post-disaster can can be a negative effect. Mm, That could... Yeah... That's, that's quite interesting. And I'm just thinking everything is just so intertwined and this is such a complex issue. Like even if we just wanted to look at housing, we couldn't just do that without, we can't just isolate just housing. Yeah. We'll have to look at other factors. That's the thing. Because we can't just take one situation and try to solve that one problem. Everything comes in together and that's what makes it harder to find a solution for a problem. I feel like. So how could policymakers, I guess, because I want to touch more on the indigenous health aspect. And do you think doing policymaking, indigenous communities get their voices heard during these Mm. decisions? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I I think what we hear is that consultation's not enough, Mm. right? And and too often uh, that's what happens. I've been reading about the Canadian uh, Index on Wellbeing, so maybe I'll use that as an example. And, and what it shows is it's looking to create a framework in Canada to be able to measure well-being across a wide range of factors. And what's interesting is when you think about what 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 counts is kind of what gets measured, right? So, um, what does that mean? That's right. 
So like, you know, we're going to pay attention to something if we're able to evaluate and measure it. And I would say that uh, one of the gaps is that uh, maybe some of the aspects that need to be, to be measured haven't um, or do not include Indigenous perspectives or Indigenous-led organizations who maybe haven't been involved in kind of determining what are these measures that lead to well-being, mm-hmm. right? So thinking about how to incorporate those perspectives, those voices in what matters to to Canadians and Indigenous peoples mm-hmm. in, in the country. So how can policymakers ensure Indigenous voices are heard in these situations? Yeah. Yeah, and and that's such a great example because um, as a researcher who often does a lot of qualitative research, um, sometimes policymakers aren't quite sure what to do with that (laughs) Uh, because it's it's sort of anecdotal or like what's the evidence surrounding this. So for us as researchers, we really have to think about, you know, how do we how do we use those qualitative narratives and voices and perspectives to have an impact at a policy level it's it, it can be a challenge yeah is there a way you guys have found a way to like incorporate those qualitative observations yeah. well I, I think sometimes what happens is you know you might have some smaller studies with like a smaller sample size with mm-hmm. like maybe 20 people who've been consulted but then over time maybe you've had 20 or 30 of those kinds of research projects that have also had smaller samples and then you can say actually like across this now we have evidence that shows in 30 different projects you know they all have small sample size this is what appears to be taking place like policymakers need to think about those findings as well right but like you said i guess it can be difficult because it's can't just count if we're having qualitative information like it's definitely harder to incorporate but I guess that's where effort comes in trying to make more connections with different communities and hear their voices because I know um, how indigenous communities view wellness and well-being is sometimes a little bit different Um, yeah how do you see your work impacting policy and practice yeah well, it, it depends on the topic area, but, mm-hmm. but I do feel that we've um, been able to bring people together to uh, have a voice and um, move forward uh, the field of disaster social work. Um, because I'm going to say it was probably back in 2009 when I first started looking at the impacts of climate change. This was in British Columbia. Someone asked me at a conference, what does social work have to do with climate change? <laughs> and, and my response at the time was, it has everything to do with it. And and now I don't think I would be asked that question because I feel like the field is, is moving forward and showing like that there are such important social dimensions that relate to what we're experiencing in climate change, um, you know, here in Alberta, but also internationally. Um, so I think that's when you start to see like how things are are moving forward. And, and in some ways, the COVID pandemic like did create this opportunity to do things differently. And and one of the areas that I do work in is in social work field education. And and some of the ways that that we've been thinking about field before the pandemic and now after the pandemic are quite transformatory. Like the transformation has taken place and there's so much more openness and willingness 
to do things differently. And that came about because of the pandemic. And so in a way, that's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about the question they asked you, how did social, how social work connected to climate change? How did that affect you? Is that is that like a pivot point in your career, would you say? Yeah, I've, ha- I've had a few interesting experiences like yeah. that where someone has said like, um, like another example, this this was when I started off and has ha- a new assistant professor, someone said to me, you can't do research on field education. And it angered me, you know, like I actually got angry about that. And I thought, well, yes, you can. And it's important. And so I sort of became determined <laughs> to, to do it and to show that, no, this is something that can be done. Even if at, or at that time, there was a climate that was maybe not... Um, recognizing field for the important role that it plays in social work education. And so that this is sometimes, you know, how we need to advocate and, and to create changes to say, okay, if these are sort of the dominant perspectives, how can we show that this is important in, within this space? Mm-hmm. I love that you took like those negative aspects and turned it around for a beautiful cause and it made it impact. And I'm glad that this field is coming in more light. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a need. I think there's definitely a need for it because of climate change and all the different things that are going on in the in the world. I think there is a need for more social work education and research on social work field work, field education. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, too, like kind of looking back on back on those experiences, it's not always easy, right, to to kind of be part of that change, but it's very rewarding. So if if you're a person who has an idea or you're passionate about an issue but it still seems like insurmountable, you can often find a way. And so kind of don't give up, <laughs> kind of keep persevering and and look for people who can kind of join join in with you because you don't have to go it alone. Yeah. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I think that's something I've been learning a lot recently, like doing collaborate, collaborative events or initiatives with other people. When you start looking for people um, who are passionate about the environment, you start to find more and more people. So, networking. Networking, yeah. <laughs> That's how it happens. Mm-hmm. But and going to conferences. Uh, that too. I mean, you're going to a conference tomorrow or that's your teaching yeah I'm here for a residency for two days and then I'm going to a conference with with a strong environment and sustainability component yeah that's awesome and just to let you guys know she came in to Edmonton literally this morning and I'm so glad you came in for that just to record this podcast so we're really grateful that you were able to make it today you see this field evolving. Yeah, yeah. no, thank you. Um, so so my, my main field is in the area of international social work. And then within that, I have kind of different project areas that I'm engaged in. And um, what I'm hoping for, I would say, in the next decade is um, seeing social work at the table in some of these spaces where maybe right now um, the voice of social work practitioners may be absent. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in disaster planning and thinking about recovery actions and thinking about mitigating impacts of climate change and adaptation measures, that social workers have built that capacity and understanding 
to be contributing at the table and that they're consulted and have a voice. Because I think right now uh, the profession is in a place where we're building that capacity and um, I offer training uh, um, to students in courses, but we've also created the Social Work and Disaster Network in Alberta, uh, and I co-chair that network with Bonnie Lewin. And through that network, we're offering like psychological first aid training to social workers and others to like again build that capacity and understanding, so that when these events take place, social workers are in the communities that are being affected directly by these events. And so there's a social worker in every community who can play a role in responding and supporting local recovery so that external people are not necessarily having to come in, but we're continuously b building that and connecting social workers to provide those needed supports. Because climate change is now, it's happening, and you know we're seeing the smoke outside, the wildfires events, like these are annual events now. Um, and uh, and we also face other risks in Alberta, where there's risks of flood, there's hailstorms. Uh, within the last two weeks, tornado touchdowns, like we can have lots of like heavy, um, there's different types of natural hazards that we're exposed to. And so we need to really um, better develop those preparedness skills as well. And another project that I've been working on is creating virtual disaster preparedness kits. And so encouraging people to um, think about all their important documents that they have in their homes. And if you were suddenly evacuated or weren't able to access those paper copies, do you have virtual copies of those important documents? Um, your health cards, your your passport, your working papers, your like everything that you can think of that that would be difficult to replace if if you didn't have like if the paper copies suddenly disappeared. So that's another initiative that, that links into preparedness. So I'd love to see people feel that that they're prepared and contribute to that resiliency and when unexpected things happen. Right. I love the idea of those kits. And yeah. are these being implemented or are they still in the planning phase? So so we've done um, the research on them to, to kind of understand like what, what, sh what documents should be incorporated. And we're learning about what kind of secure server space is needed to host those documents. And we submitted a report to the Institute on Catastrophic Loss Reduction because they funded this initial component, but more work needs to be done before we can actually um, launch it. Right, yeah. right, for sure. Because in a virtual setting, I'm assuming there's a lot more um, theft that can't be... You know, that can be identified. In, like, yeah, that's a concern. Yeah, it's definitely a concern, right? So how, how to keep those important documents in a safe space online. Yeah. So one last question before we wrap up this episode for today. Um, if you could leave the listeners with one point or learning or highlight, what would it be? I feel like the preparedness kit was like a good point, but is there anything else? would like to add yeah i would say get involved <laughs> there's yeah. so many ways to um you know get involved and take initiative on these issues and um and that's what we need today is you know people coming together and, and taking some action and learning from one another so thank you so much dr julie jolay for joining us today and sharing your insights 
And thank you again, Dr. Julie Drolet. We really enjoyed your discussions we had today, and we really appreciate your time taking out of your busy schedule, coming all the way to Edmonton from Edmonton. And we also want to thank CJSW, the Indigenous Global and Local Health Office, Grandmother's Lounge, and the UCREATE team for helping us kickstart this podcast. We couldn't have done this without your support and knowledge. And lastly, thank you to everyone who tuned in. Remember to join us on CJSW, Spotify, and Apple Music for bi-weekly episodes on all topics, healthcare, with special guests, and your two favorite hosts, Nidhi and Arushi. Keep a lookout for the next episodes. And until then, stay warm, stay cool. (laughs) 